Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. By the time this year's Juneteenth arrives, America will likely have a new federal holiday to mark that day in 1865 when the last enslaved black people in Texas learned about their freedom. It came two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed by Abraham Lincoln. But many Americans received what they thought was a good education without ever hearing the word Juneteenth. Yet, the nation is conflicted about how students are taught lessons about race and racism. After the murder of George Floyd, many sought to learn those lessons that were absent in the traditional whitewashed version of American history taught for generations. It's what they call critical race theory. But what really is any mention of how racism has affected America? The anti-critical race theory effort is trying to stop that movement dead in its tracks. Idaho was one of the first states, and Florida is one of the latest, to jump into the conflict over the teaching of critical race theory. They, along with Oklahoma, Tennessee, and Iowa, have passed laws to ban it in their state schools, with other states lining up to do the same. Former President Donald Trump, of course, is on the record against it, and it's become a major left-versus-right, liberal-versus-conservative battle in the culture war and a political litmus test. The definitions given by Republican governors signing these bills bear no resemblance to what its proponents say is a truthful and accurate way of defining American history and the role of race and racism in the country's institutions and systems, from law and criminal justice to health care and housing. Now, all of that has been tossed into a giant bucket labeled critical race theory. So, how did we get to the point where considering how racism shaped the country's institutions has become, well, un-American? Today, we speak with Jasmine Owens, who has done a lot of thinking and advocating on this issue, on the education policy team at the New America Foundation, and previously, the National Urban League. Well, welcome to Equal Time, Jasmine Owens. Now, you are a former teacher yourself, so you've really been in the trenches when it comes to teaching race and racism. But the definition of critical race theory in some of these punitive state bills is truly unrecognizable to any academic who studied it. So to, for starters, can you, for our listeners here on Equal Time, define the concept simply and succinctly? Critical race theory, um, it's a theoretical framework not curriculum. Critical race theory has four main assumptions. One, race is not biologically real, but socially constructed and maintained. So um, I'm Black, you're Black. We know that, you know, that doesn't go as deep as DNA, but the Black experience is something that is real and is something that is experienced in different ways by different people, right? Okay. So two, race is present in all of our laws, systems and structures and racial inequity is then reproduced and reinforced by those systems. Three, because it's present in all of our structures and systems, racism then becomes the norm and not the exception. So instances of racism are not one-off events, but expressions of structural and systemic racism. And four and last one is race and racism are best understood through the narrative experiences of people of color. Well, that seems pretty simple. I mean, that was my understanding that when we talk about the history of racism in this country, it's not just a couple of people doing some bad things, but it's a whole, it's systems. And it's pretty clear 
to see that when you look at the laws and the policies. So then why does so much of the political debate talk about it teaches white children to feel guilty and all children to think race defines your destiny? Well, I, I think it comes down to taking it as an individual as opposed to an analysis of the system, right? So critical race theory is not about blaming any one individual for any action, right? It's about understanding the systems by which racism is reproduced and reinforced. That kind of framing or understanding of critical race theory, one, is incorrect. It's, it's, a, it's misnaming what critical race theory is, number one. But two, um, it offers such a limited view, really, of how students can understand race, right? I think we, we don't give students enough credit for being able to understand like the humanistic nuances that go along with those kinds of discussions. But students are really perceptive. They can be taught that, that, that it's more than just the actions of a single person, as opposed to looking at the entire system and looking at the, the institutions. I think um, students can um, really understand and kind of um, be in, in discussion in those conversations in a, in a really intellectual way and in a really um, in, a, in a way that is is a learning experience for them um, and and does not blame um, any one person for any individual actions. Now it also seems that people are conflating this what is usually taught in colleges is my understanding and the academy to just any mention of race and racism in American history in, in K through 12, which most of these bills are about, which it really isn't a concept that's really been dealt with in a truly academic sense. So they're conflating sort of so many things, it seems to me. Right. Um, I think what's happening here is, is a conflation of, of, of culturally responsive teaching, of anti-racist curriculum, of um, diversity and equity and inclusion training and work and that kind of thing and just kind of calling it critical race theory. It's not the same. Those are all very specific and individual um, concepts and ideas um, with their own kind of rules and frameworks and things. So I'm yeah, you're you're right. It it is it's a conflation of, of, of a number of things. And still you have at least a dozen states from Missouri and West Virginia to Rhode Island and New Hampshire that are weighing measures to prohibit schools from teaching lessons about racism, race, and in even some uh, instances, sexism in America's history. So what is going on here? Uh, what, what is the end game? And is this even constitutional? Um, what's going on here is censorship um, is really what it comes down to. It, it, it's lawmakers attempting to censor the way that race is discussed in the classroom, um, attempting to censor teachers, attempting to censor students. Um, yeah. And as to the end game, I, <laughs> I'm not really sure what the yeah. end game is. I think there, there's some, there are going to be some really long-term consequences in terms of like what this means for how students understand American history um, in terms of, you know, what's being taught regionally. I think, you know, there are going to be some real differences when we're looking at a map, you know, 
between South Carolina and Georgia right now. You know, South Carolina's got at least one bill. Even, you know, Alabama and Mississippi are right next to each other. Mississippi's got at least three. And Alabama's got none that I know of. So just looking at the differences in terms of, you know, what students are going to be learning from state to state in terms of the framing of our American history, in terms of what information students will have access to from their classrooms. I mean, that, that, that's going to be a real issue should these bills pass. Yeah. And, and what would be the consequences of it, of these you know, different, depending upon where you come from, you might have a whole different sense of American history. Uh, one, one more complex than nuanced and one the so-called, in quotes, patriotic education. Right, right. Well, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to have some really deep impacts on, like I said, the accuracy of the information that students have access to. Um, it's also definitely going to impact the, you know, quality of teachers that you have access to. It's not going to attract good teachers to the profession. It's not going to make good teachers want to stay in the profession if they're going to be censored and censured and punished for teaching accurate versions of American history, right? Like, that's going to force folks out of the classroom, yeah, you already have some teachers pushing back on this. Look at what happened in, I'm saying I'm in Charlotte, but in Chapel Hill at UNC where the school block tenure that had been given to previous folks in her chair for the renowned journalist, Nicole Hannah-Jones, because she's known for creating the award-winning 1619 Project. Um, so doesn't this fly in the face of free speech? Yeah, these bills really are attempting to censor Free speech. They really are attempting to censor, you know, what is the truth about, you know, America's past and America's history. Um, And to call that in itself racist, I think is just inaccurate, you know. Yeah. Well, do you think the federal government uh, needs to weigh in on this debate and the growing divide? They're going to have to say something. I'm not really sure what the medium is going to be. Um, but because, you know, what's happening is happening at the state level, um, there is the state legislature to contend with. I think mm-hmm. um, should some of these bills pass and be put in place before um, the federal government can kind of get its game plan together in terms of you know, what, what the actions are going to be following this or how to prevent it in the future. I don't want to be on the team that has to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> it is tough. I mean, you have even the Southern Baptist Convention, which they're meeting this week, they've weighed in against critical race theory, accusing it of being rooted in Marxism, though other members have push back on that, um, particularly some African-American members uh, who are threatening to kind of walk out over some of uh, their policies. But that's a frequent criticism. How do you counter it? Uh, wh- where does that come from? It seems, uh, it seems almost reminiscent of in the civil rights movement where they were uh, saying it was communist, you know. So uh, have you thought about that particular criticism of it? I, not that particular criticism of it. But criticisms of critical race theory in general, I think 
for me personally, my way to combat it is to really speak to the nuance of what critical race theory is and isn't, what culturally responsive teaching is and isn't, what, you know, DEI is and isn't, what the 1619 Project is and isn't. You know, that that piece of work in itself is not critical race theory, right? And, and there's currently federal re- legislation aiming to ban um, funding for states that use the 1619 Project in their curriculum, right? That what it represents, what, what it really represents, the root of the issue, um, really speaking to that as opposed to kind of calling out the politics of the conversation, I think is where I personally stand. And I think that's that's where my organization would stand as well, is really speaking to the the the, the context and the nuance of like what we're really talking about and, and having the the um, the deeper conversation. Yeah, this is New America that you yes, work with. Yes. yes. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking back to my education before yours, so much of the history was whitewashed. And I didn't see myself in it, and I had to learn about it pretty much on my own. So has America always pretty much banned teaching critical race theory even before someone gave it a name, meaning teaching about the mixed uh, legacies of our founding fathers and all of these things? I, I, I would say yes in a way. There was a case... I want to say maybe it was in Texas where there was a a textbook that called slavery immigration. And this was, you know, prior to all of these debates about critical race theory, et cetera, you know, and that, but that's, that's kind of where, that's the space that we're coming from where, where we're, we're wanting to call out the truths about our American history as opposed to glossing over the things that are that are are painful and hurtful about our past, you know, slavery is not immigration. That's not what it was. <laughs> yeah, and enslaved human beings were not workers. And I exactly. I, I remember that exactly. case because Texas is such a big textbook market that so much what it, of what is done there, the books are take are given to other places, so they have an outsized effect on how history is taught. So. That's problematic. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now, I know um, they're debating this here in North Carolina, and students actually are forming organizations and groups to demand to be taught about racism and its uh, legacy in a more nuanced way. And I know in Idaho, before that bill was passed, many students were protesting. So um, that's one way that there's going there's some pushback. But what do you think can be done to bring the truth alive and, and keep it, keep the conversation going? And what are some of the things you're doing? But, but what do you think should be some of the strategies? Well, I think it's awesome that, you know, students are raising their voices because I think their, their voices are the ones that really need to be heard because at the end of the day, they're the ones that lose out with this kind of legislation, right? So I think their voices need to be really the loudest at the table. Um, in addition, I think it's really going to be up to advocates and voters to make sure that these kinds of bills get voted down. Um, they don't have a place. They don't have a place. And we need to be really honest about what they represent, about what they're really about, what they're really saying. Um, and I think for me, that's, that's kind of my position in terms of uh, like 
what I can do is to really speak truth to power and be really honest about the context and 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 the the the, the content of what's in this kind of legislation, the censorship that the that's being attempted here, and kind of the the um what's at the root of of some of these proposals. So um, I think that's what we're going to continue to do. And um, for those of for those organizations that have kind of um, like affiliates and kind of um, kind of on the ground kind of folks work doing doing um, like direct service work and that kind of thing, I think. You know, there, there are um, opportunities for those advocates and those voters to really let their, their state legislatures know how they feel about these bills and to, to call their representatives to make sure, write letters to, you know, really ha- let their voices be heard in terms of what is at stake when we're talking about the education of, of a future generation, Right. It's so interesting because it is a future generation. This is future voters. Do you think some laws that say on voting restrictions and other things are of a piece of that, that if people really don't know the history, that some other kinds of restrictive legislation will seem perfectly logical or not related to it all at all if people don't know what that history, if you don't know about the history of voting restrictions in Jim Crow, then why would you object to these new voting laws, you know? Right, right. It's all connected. Um, it's all connected. And I think, you know, just continuing to, to, to make sure people have the opportunity to vote, to have the, the opportunity to, to have their voices heard in the, that public space, I think is so incredibly important. And, and this work goes hand in hand, I think. Because you're right, these are future voters. And, mm-hmm. and to your point about students really organizing and, and making sure that they, they lift up what they want to be taught, I think this generation is, they, they're, some, they're some change makers. They are, they are into action. <laughs> I'm really excited about that for them. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you think a part of it too is just opening your eyes to what's around you? I can look here in Charlotte and see, you know, there was a hospital that only Blacks could go to because they couldn't go to the white hospitals. They were neighborhoods, including my own, that restricted covenants kept you out. So that's a reason why wealth went to certain neighborhoods. So it seems a part of education of race is just to kind of open your eyes to see what you're surrounded by. As a Black person, I have my experience, right? And I, I, I had to check myself in predominantly white spaces. And I'm, now I'm talking to you as just Jasmine, right? I had to check myself in predominantly white spaces because I, I take for granted my positionality sometimes, the way that I see the world as a Black woman. I am hyper aware of the experiences of the people around me. Um, I don't think that's the same for everyone. I don't think that's the same for everyone. And I think that... that, that um, being able to step outside of yourself is a really important conversation, is a really important lesson to learn, especially when we're having really nuanced conversations about race, because it, get, it gets back to my beginning point about critical race theory not being about blaming a single individual for a single action. You have to step outside of yourself to really be able to understand that. It's not about the one thing that happened. It's about the bigger picture, right? 
that's a really important lesson that I think I, I've, I've been able to learn as, as a Black person and as a Black woman. Um, because of my position, I, I can see where everyone didn't get that lesson. Um, but I think that that lesson is really important if we're going to have um, really progressive conversations about race and understanding um, the systemic effects of race. So what question haven't I asked you that I should have? Because you really want to get that message out and something you, it's something you want to talk about. Um, I don't think that you missed anything, but I really <laughs> want to underscore, I really want to underscore that critical race theory is not curriculum. I really want to underscore that what's being, um, what's being uh, the goal of this legislation of, of banning critical race theory is really about censorship. It's really about not giving students the opportunity to have accurate and access to accurate information about American history. And, you know, at the end of the day, we really have to push back. We have to push back and, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to take some organization on our parts, I think. But we're going to have to do some work when it comes down to the voters and advocates in these states to make sure that these bills do not pass. Yeah, well, my son's a historian, and he always reminds me that every time there's progress, there's always pushback in American history. So isn't part of that education about racism and race and the nuances in America, learning about that fact that every time groups have made progress, that this is no surprise. There's always been some kind of pushback, whether it's women getting the vote or any of those things. Always. There's always going to be pushback. There's always going to be pushback. Same thing um, after Stonewall and, you know, the, I mean, there are so many examples in history of, of progress and pushback. But, I mean, the only way to keep progressing is to keep pushing. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much. I appreciate your time and your knowledge and your energy. Absolutely. What's keeping me up at night? We've been talking about critical race theory and how the role of race in shaping our country's policies has been taught. The debate is spilled into our legislatures and our houses of worship. This week, in fact, both the Southern Baptist Convention and the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops will be meeting, talking about internal divisions over issues that range from racism, sexism, and in the bishop's case, whether pro-choice Catholic politicians should receive the Eucharist. What about other, some might say more pressing issues? Voting restrictions that take special aim at black churchgoers, or economic insecurity among the least of us, immigration, homelessness. Are these people of faith missing the big picture? I write about it at Roll Call in my column this week. Please check it out. So what about our equal time listeners? Well, Andrea told me what's keeping her up. As a young self-employed videographer, she worries about paying for health care. She wants to get married and have a family one day. But first, she wants to be financially stable, and she wonders how hard it will be to get there. Let me know what's on your mind by tweeting me at mcurtisnc3. And thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.